Hello and welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is part two of our discussion on immigration with Dr. Eric Smith of the Olive School of Theology. If you would like to know more about Brew Theology, you can find us at brewtheology.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology and on Twitter at Brew underscore Theology. Thank you so much for joining us and I hope you enjoy the conversation. What I thought was was really fascinating was just the discussion with with Romans 13 and I I guess I am like one of these people who didn't really know about this whole different interpretation my my church is pretty progressive and just the idea that people can see something so different from what I see it it was really eye opening Romans 13 should we go should for we, it should we read it here go for okay. it Let's have okay. a recitation all right. So Romans 13, 1 to 7, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good and you will receive its approval. For it is, it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid. For the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Wrath. I haven't used that word in a while. Therefore, <laughs> one must be subject not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants. Should I do this in a different accent? By the way, I, I can make a draw. Uh, pay, ta- pay your damn taxes. Sorry. For the authorities are God's servants. Busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due to them. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue to whom revenue is due. Respect to whom respect is due. I like that one right there. And honor to whom honor is due. That changes things. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Too bad had, taxes and revenue don't really have any connection to respect and honor, but okay. So uh, for me, the part that was really eye-opening, um, and I don't want to get on a crazy rabbit trail with this, but um, the first time I really like ever absorbed like how this is happening and like put into practice in American politics um, was watching the Netflix documentary called the family and i'm i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go too far um into it but but basically the the point of it all is just that in the end how can somebody who is christian how can they reconcile themselves with having 45 in power and the answer is that due to these verses that if you're in power, then you're automatically ordained by God. And if you think about it that way, which is super mind blowing to me, it it gives me like this entire different perspective on how people behave. And it kind of still doesn't make sense for me because, you know, there was still, um, a lot of evangelicals who probably are using this thought to justify 
their support of 45 who were still not okay with Obama being there. But again, you know, does it go back to racism? Does it go back to politics? Does it go back to actually it's not about any of this? It's really just about who's putting money in my pocket. I don't know. But I think it was really interesting when you were describing the different ways of interpreting this this passage. Yeah. And let me say, by the way, for the record, Barack Obama is my guy. And I don't know if I'll ever have a better feeling about a president in my lifetime than I had about Barack Obama. But he was pretty terrible about immigration as well. He was, um, I, I think, arguably the worst in American history for immigration until Donald Trump. So I don't um, necessarily want to put him on a pedestal. But I think now uh, the rhetoric has shifted mm-hmm. a little bit. And I agree, uh, no one was going around quoting Romans 13 to say we should do whatever Obama says. So to me, uh, Romans 13 is a fascinating case, partly because it really came to my consciousness when I saw Jeff Sessions quoting this, which for me kind of came out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't really familiar with the tradition of people quoting Romans 13, people in power quoting it to kind of bolster their own power. But then I saw Sessions do it and I thought, well, wait a minute, that's a that's a really interesting claim, right? That, that he's making that, um, that by definition, the law is good and authority is good. And and he's quoting Paul to do that. So, um, I started looking into it for a book I was writing at the time and there, it turns out there's a long history of people wrestling with just this question you're describing of what do we do with claims that authority is by nature good that, um, that any authority is automatically legitimate and should be obeyed. One of the first people to really comment on this was Origen of Alexandria. Origen is very early on in the Christian tradition, and his father actually had been a Christian as well and had been persecuted, had been tortured really um, under one of the early persecutions. And so Origen reading this, Origen actually thought reading the Bible literally is like the worst possible way to read it. He thought that generally, but he thought, especially in the case of Romans 13, there's no way, according to Origen, there's no way Paul meant what it appears to mean on the surface because, because of his own experience of seeing his father tortured by authority. He knew in his own experience that authority is not always good, right? And it turns out that lots of other Christians throughout time have come to that same conclusion. There's this great tradition among people who have experienced colonialism of having this passage quoted to them by the colonial occupiers as a rationale for why they should be docile and not rebel. And this is sometimes called the colonial interpretation. This is the kind of thing that only a colonizing government would would say. This was a big debate in the American Revolution, which was itself, of course, a colonial war, that there were some colonists who were loyal to Britain who thought that, of course, yes, God has ordained any power that is in place and we should obey it. And others who were saying, no, we should only obey power that is right, only obey power that that has the that can command our obedience. The same kind of discourse happens, you know, in the civil rights movement about, you know, it's it was lawful to make Rosa Parks get out of her chair. It wasn't right. So if you have something that is lawful but not right, you should oppose that. And that, of course, flies in the the face of Romans 13. So my favorite really interpretation of this is beyond those is that Paul in, in Romans is writing this letter to this 
group of churches in Rome that he's never visited before, but he knows that there are Jews and Gentiles and he knows that they're in conflict with one another. And he knows that he needs to say something about that. And so the, all of Romans actually from, from the beginning up to this point has been about that. And it would be really surprising. I think if in chapter 13, suddenly Paul just started talking about like civil authority for some reason, it'd be really surprising if he totally switched gears and started doing something different. So in Romans 13, um, I don't think that's what he's doing. I don't think he suddenly just decided to give a civics lesson. I think in Romans 13, he's talking not about civil authority, which is not the word he uses anyway. He's talking about religious authority. He's talking about synagogue authorities. And he's talking to Gentiles in the city of Rome to say, look, you're a part of this Jesus tradition. I know you're not Jewish, but you're a part of this Jesus tradition. And it must have been some sort of open question about whether they, the Gentile Jesus followers, needed to follow uh, synagogue authority. And he's saying, yeah, just do it. Like these synagogue authorities are in power. They're, they're in positions of leadership because God has put them there, which I think is a much easier, although still not unproblematic way to think about power. God has put them in place. And so, yeah, do what they're, do what they're asking. And, um, you know, the thing about taxes, that seems like a really civil kind of responsibility, but in fact, it probably refers to, you know, the, the taxes due from Jews for the upkeep of the temple and then later on for the uh, sort of a, a penalty for the Jewish war. It probably refers to that kind of payment that Jews would have paid and Gentiles, you might imagine, didn't want to pay it. And so Paul's here saying, yeah, just pay, pay the taxes because you are a, benefit, a beneficiary of this tradition, too. You belong to these people, too, because of your belonging with Jesus. So I don't think it's about civil authority at all. And in fact, Paul would have been the last guy to go around saying, just obey authority, do what they say, because he was not good at that himself. He was always getting beaten up, chased out of town, uh, flogged, hauled into court. All sorts of things were happening to Paul all the time. He hardly had a simplistic view of authority and its goodness all the time. So I think that's what Paul's up to here. He's not, he's not at all suggesting that we just whatever authority, whatever government's in place is good because it's the government. He's, he's actually talking about religious life. And I think he would have actually argued against the way Romans 13 has been used by people in power over, over the years in lots of different places, including the way it was used by Jeff Sessions. So what do you do with religious authority then? Well, I happen to be a religious authority. Um, and I don't think that's a very healthy way to view religious authority either. I'm from a tradition that is actually very skeptical of clergy and their power. So I, I don't actually agree with Paul, assuming that's what he's talking about. I don't think, you know, respect is one thing, but I don't think all religious authority is automatically ordained by God and good, because I've seen to the contrary quite a few times. Is there any evidence that this could be redacted or put in later to give the impression of obeying civil authority? You know, um, there are parts of Paul's letters that are that way, and I don't know of any evidence of this one. I don't have a, a Bible in front of me to look, but um, I'm not aware that this is a place that's had an especially busy textual history. Okay. Um, you know, if you look in the Greek New Testament at the bottom, there's all these notes about differences in manuscripts, and you can tell how messy a verse is and whether that kind of thing is a possibility. Sometimes you can tell by just looking at the notes. So if I had that in front of me, I could look, but my hunch is then no, this is a pretty, this belongs to Romans. And I think if, if you read it that way as belonging to Romans, then it, it really can't be about civic authority. Right. So how come, I assume you gave me the NRSV. I did. How come 
they haven't done something to notate that or change like it says subject to the governing authorities why isn't the word religious in there or something like that to help us cue into that so we don't use it the way that it's being used yeah that's a great question um the reason the word religious in there is not in there is because it's not in the Greek. So the Greek okay. is actually fairly ambiguous. Um, there are specific words for government authorities, and there are a little bit more specific words for synagogue authorities. Uh, and, of course, he could have used the word synagogue there. Right. Um, which is synagogos. But um, or, I forget what the Greek is, what gender it is. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, he doesn't use those words. And... You know, there's a, a scholar named Neil Elliott who wrote a book called The Arrogance of Nations that might have something to say on this topic, which is that Paul in Romans, because he understands that he's writing this letter to kind of the heart of the Roman Empire, because he understands that it might be sometime in the view of power, that he writes it in a way that if it gets read by someone in power that they could see what they want to see yep. and that they wouldn't suspect him or the recipients of the letter of, of being, um, what's the word I want? Insurrectionist or subversive. subversive or yeah. And, uh, he, Neil Elliott reads Romans as, um, a, a way of kind of reading or a way of addressing the Romans with a wink and a nod where people who understand would read the, you know, this as saying one thing, but if, some sort of authority figure picked it up, they would think, oh, he's just saying obey authority. Mm-hmm. So that might be why the, the okay. word is ambiguous, which is why the NRSV renders it ambiguously. As a good-hearted reverend, compassionate, loving, you remember your story, you, you know your story, you live your story. What does your embodied theology say to, to your people, even if they're not your people, Christians at large? Which are your people, right? And that doesn't have to be your congregation. About this this matter at hand, I mean, what 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 are Christians to do, Rev? <laughs> I I would object to being good-hearted. I think I'm uh, mediocre-hearted at best. But I think we we're called to be better, right, than we are, and we're called to be more compassionate than we feel like being, and we're called to be more understanding of others' experiences than than what we could get just by being selfish. And so I, I, you know, I have three small kids and I sometimes think about, you know, what could make me hire someone to take us across a border? And I sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, wonder what could, what could make me, you know, make my eight year old travel a thousand miles by foot and by in the back of a truck or something. And it, it, it would have to be horrifying. It would have to be horrific to make that happen. And then I think about, let's say I make it to this place where I really want to be and they take my children away and they lock my children in a, in a facility and they lock me in a different facility, you know, and, and I think about the fact that that's being done in my name. And I guess what I would say to fellow Christians is stop and think about whether that's what we're called to be and whether that's what we're called to do. It seems to me, yeah, we've been talking about the Bible in my opinion, the weight of the Bible is squarely against something like that. But leaving the Bible aside, just think about, just think about being a decent human being. That cannot be what we are called to be. It cannot be that if we are trying to do the best thing that we can do as people and as a collective of people, as a government, it can't be that taking kids away and locking them up 
is the right thing. It can't be that turning people away who've journeyed for a thousand miles is the right thing to do. There's all sorts of economic arguments for why immigration turns out to actually be good. You could, if you want to argue it selfishly, it's possible to do that, that it actually helps our economy. But that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is these are people who have journeyed to our doorstep in desperation. And the idea of turning them away or locking them up, taking away their children is just abhorrent to me. And I would, I would hope I could convince my co-religionists, my fellow Christians uh, to feel the same way. Yeah. Ryan, I saw your face when he was talking about that. What does that make you, how does that make you feel thinking about having to take Caroline and Anna on that journey? Yeah. I mean, immediately when you, you say, take your eight year old daughter, I mean, I have a seven year old and then the three-year-old would probably have fun because she wouldn't have a clue what's going on. She wouldn't be scared. Seven-year-old would be scared. I'd be scared. I, it, but you know, it shouldn't have to come down to like your, I mean, if that's what it takes, you looking at your family, it should be that we should just be better and just look at other people as our family. But I get that humans are innately selfish and it has to be, you have to think about your family to then make the connection to make about the other family, our family. Yeah. Uh, but that's a that's a terrifying situation to so the fact that somebody that people millions of people do this yeah it it, break, it breaks my heart i mean hell i'm going to go off here but i looked at the the proposed budget yesterday in the skeletal form not no, no one's going to read the whole thing and it broke my heart just as a, as a not as a christian but as a humanist somebody who cares about humans i thought to myself how, how does this make sense to humanity in our own country much less like, I mean, we're talking about people outside. Like we can't even, we can't even love on the ones we got here. Well, Mm-mm. cause I mean, people always say like, you, you know what somebody loves by their checkbook and their accounts and, you know, and their spreadsheets and all that. And it's true. I mean, we're, and we're all guilty by the way of like things that we spend on that we shouldn't spend on. But ultimately like our budget, it's not just a budget. It points to, to people. The programs are about people. And you know, if, and if there's so, if there's not room for our own people, do we even have, a shot, you know, is, is there, will pigs fly? I, I don't know. I mean, with immigrants, like that's, that's such a long shot if we can't even do it with our own. And I have no interest to do it with our yeah. own. I mean, just a few things I've seen this week, they've talked about um, most people by their second year of fighting cancer have spent their entire life savings. That shouldn't happen. That shouldn't happen. And they're talking about taking, I mean, Hey, if you, you think it's just been all talk, like, this budget talks about cutting Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. My parents could easily live 10 more, 10 more years. It's very possible. And that means that all the money that they have been counting on would not be there anymore. And then it's, it's up to Gen X to pick that up. And most of my Gen X friends don't have the resources to pick up their parents. Yeah. Like, And I just like, what are we doing? Yeah, the fact that it's, I mean, I, I get that this is this shit's proposed every year and it won't most likely won't get passed. Thanks to the house. Thank you house. But you know, um, the fact that it's proposed makes me question humans in charge and cause we want to blame one person. It's Trump. I mean, come on. He didn't write it. No, he's, he's got, got, yeah, there's Patriots, people, but yeah, that, but that people have always said like, cause we want to make it about the one guy like that really that Trump is the mirror. And so it's just, it's, it's a, it's a lot of people and it's us too. I mean, what, how do we look at our fellow man regardless? 
if they have the US of A flag, if they're stamped, if they've got, you know, whatever's on their passport. I mean, shit. How do we look at people? Yeah. It's remarkable that in the, the book of Acts, when Acts is trying to tell the story of the earliest followers of Jesus following Jesus's death, that it tells the story in a way of this like intense communalism yep. that, um, you know, people were together. They held things in common. They would sell their possessions and their goods. This is Acts 2, 44 and following. They would distribute the proceeds to all as any had need, and they would spend much time together in the temple breaking bread at home and eating their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Like that's the vision, whether that ever happened or not. I don't really know. It's a great vision. And, um, you know, I'm not one of these people that thinks actually that America should be a Christian nation because I think there's America and there's Christianity and those maybe shouldn't hang out together, um, as much, mostly for the benefit of Christianity. But if we're going to say that we have some basis in this, in this tradition, in this set of texts, then, you know, this thing about holding things in common and up, uplifting people who have fallen down. And that mm-hmm. to me is the, the ethic. That's the, the thing that, um, that should guide us in and, policy. And, you know, kids, teenagers, they read these verses in youth groups and in children's ministries, and they actually believe that can happen. And it makes sense to them. Whereas adults were like, yeah, it's a nice pipe dream. Yeah. But our Sikh neighbors but, do it. Uh, they provide longer for anyone that comes to the table and they sit in the temple and they eat and that's exactly what they do. And I don't see a lot of Christian churches doing that sometimes. Maybe they do. I'm not there. The whole so. what's, what's mine is yours is so anti-American. Yeah. So when you were talking about that, it, it reminded me of a conversation that I have recently had, um, and I was actually talking to a pastor about, like, how do you reconcile two different sides of Christianity where one side of Christianity is very concerned about salvation and one side of Christianity is very concerned about the message? From your perspective as a reverend, how do we, I think most of us here are, are coming from the side of the message. How do we communicate our thoughts and feelings and try to have the side that's that's concerned about salvation see what we see you know there's this book by a scholar named rodney stark he's a sociologist a baylor baylor guy i've read rodney stark where he tries to figure out how is it that christianity could grow from this little ragtag group of people that we were just reading about in acts 2 all the way to this sort of worldwide dominant religion how just numbers wise how how could that possibly work and rodney stark made the observation, I'm going to, this is a really rough paraphrase because it's been a while since I read it, but he points out, okay, let's say there's um, some sort of plague that hits and everyone's getting sick, you know, not maybe not unlike the coronavirus that is kind of going around right now. And, you know, in these big cities where these kind of things flourish, people have come there from somewhere else. They don't always have a social network. There's not family. There's not people to take care of them. So a lot of people are simply going to just die because they're by themselves. They have nothing. They have no one. And so Stark points out, you know, the difference in a case like that might be someone brings you some soup or some water, very simple kinds of things. And that simple thing can can make a difference. You know, maybe it's a fraction of a percentage point of, of how many people survive and how many people don't. But let's say you're one of the ones that survives that wouldn't have survived otherwise. And you get on the other side of this illness and you say, well, these people who took care of me didn't know me. They, you know, I wasn't one of them, but they took care of me. And so I'm going to 
see what they're all about and they join. Meanwhile, those people are alive, not dead. So they're able to have children. And just that kind of demographic shift in taking care of someone who needs your help is actually most of what it takes to account for the growth of Christianity. This miraculous, like almost exponential growth. That's all it really, that's all you need. So if you're concerned about numbers, about salvation, about uh, witness, about evangelism, then I think service can be an answer to that. If you do right by people, they're going to think you're worth hearing from. They're going to think that you're you're someone that is worth associating with. And over time, your numbers will grow. And so that's maybe not the argument I would make, right? That that's why we should should be good to each other. But if you want to make a salvation-based argument, I think it's actually to your advantage in terms of growth to do this kind of outreach. If you want to grow your congregation, if you're out there thinking, how could I grow my congregation? Welcome refugees. They're coming from somewhere else and looking for somewhere to, to be, to somewhere to belong. Welcome them into your community. Offer them a place to live until they find a place to be. You know, take up a, a collection of books for their children. Find them a dresser for their bedroom. That's the kind of thing that will make a difference. You know, some portion of them will join your community and be a part of you. And so, and, and they'll hear, hear your message, hear the gospel, whatever your language is for it. They'll, they'll be convinced. Some of them will. So if you want to be good evangelists, be good, good people. people. That's a good place Shocking. to start. Yeah. Yeah, I actually have a uh, the book of essays that I edited. I have a woman that was a refugee from Africa and a church in Idaho did exactly that. They stepped in and did all the basic things for her and her family. And in, now she's like a director of human rights campaign or refugee with the Red Cross. I mean, something, it's a huge job where she's helping make the li- difference in the lives of people. And it's because this one church cared for her as a human and loved on her and and they are now part of you know their church of the nazarene there um and that works for her and that's great so and so many of my more conservative and evangelical christian friends understand this really well i think that um they're they're the first ones to to protest anti-immigrant policies because even though they might be supportive of the Trump administration in other ways, they recognize that this is a way for them to engage with the world and get their message out. So to be really fair, I think a lot of a lot of uh, more conservative people than me totally get this and understand that that's a pathway to growth and to to evangelism. But we should I, I guess the only thing that makes me think of just coming from my tradition is then you also need to see those people as whole people and not as people of color that are less than. Um, I think that's one of the, that's one of the, that's the work that we don't do behind this. Like we are good sometimes at loving individuals, but then we're not good at working on those system issues. We're not good at working on our own biases and, and working through that stuff, which is what brings about larger change. So actually you'd mentioned Heather with Romans 13 how do people justify this um, imperialistic interpretation and can reconcile that with faith? And I'd read an article on unconscious bias this week about the how these kind of issues create such cognitive dissonance that it almost creates a feedback loop where um, 
in order to hold on to the position that I hold to, even though I'm watching very dedicated people that are fighting against that very thing and they're weaving it into their lives and it's shaping their policy and it's shaping them what they do with their time. I've got to cling to this even harder to make my world hold together. And then that makes it harder to have those conversations with them about, you know, well, how do we change this? How do we do the work that we need to do with white supremacy? How do we um, reckon, you know, fix those things that are broken in us? And it's, it's a, it's a really big battle because those unconscious things, especially if we don't know how to talk about them, don't recognize them to be real, can shape our action and our, our vision of truth and keep us from being better humans. But that's super hard work. I mean, I didn't know what any of that stuff was nine years ago. And so I think it's, there's a lot of depth here too. It's great to like welcome the refugee and love them and set them up. But now you've got to do the other work of seeing the world that you're not the white savior. You're not fixing them. You've got to work that stuff out inside of you and reconcile that. And that is the work that takes time And if you're raising several kids and you're working a full-time job or multiple jobs and you're highly involved in your church, you might not have time to do that work. I don't know. Yeah, there was a political campaign in Florida a couple years ago where one of the candidates was asked if he thought his uh, opponent was racist. And he said, I don't know if he's racist or not, but the racists think he's racist. And... I think that's kind of how the Bible works. You know, I don't think the Bible is racist and I don't think Christianity is racist, but the racists think it is. And, you know, the racists in Charlottesville are walking around with um, white supremacist Bible quoting signs. Yeah. And that that should tell us something that there's work that needs to be done. Um, You know, maybe that's a discussion for another podcast or something, but it's there's a lot of work to be done by by white Christians because whether we think our system, our, our Christian culture, or whatever we want to call it, is racist or not, the racists think it is. And that's a problem. Why not? Maybe we should um, share for just a second, like where our families came from. And is immigration part of any of our stories? I thought that was really interesting. Um, so like we, as we were talking, Heather was at my table. And my parents moved to New Mexico 20 years ago. And I'm like... That was the first time I ever thought of that as migration um, in that framework because my my dad needed to move because of his health and needed to go someplace dry. And so they went to this little town in New Mexico that has been uh, Hispanic and Native American for over 500 years. And my parents now live there. And there's been there were there have been times of adjustment and um, even being there 20 years, they're not considered natives of that area. But they love it there, and they love their life there. And New Mexico is now home. And I just, and that's over a thousand miles. They were from Michigan, so like that is actually a huge movement for them to pick up their life and do that. And we kind of we talked about just how many of us have moved dramatically, and we don't think of it as this like weird thing that is out of the ordinary anymore. Most people think of the Rio Grande when it comes to the borders in Texas. But really, if you're a Texan, it's the Red River. And so uh, that's the Texas OU border right there. Uh 
Yeah, those those who know know what I'm talking about. So my parents, it's funny, proud Texan. We're all proud Texans. They're from Oklahoma, <laughs> Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Oklahoma. They got married in Oklahoma. Yeah, and I, it's funny because I Texans and oh, I mean they're they're similar. Whatever it's it's it's, it's but it's no no. It's a big difference between Texans and Oklahomans. But now my parents, it's funny, like they, they claim Oklahoma, but they're Texans. They're Texans. Yeah, after, well, how many, 45 years, I guess now. But, um, you know, I, you, know you go back to our, our family history, right? It's sweet. It's the Swedes and the Germans and the whole, you know, you go back a few generations. But I don't, I don't think of that much just because all I knew was Texas growing up and then my Oklahoma family. Yeah, you know, and there was always like just jabbing each other with sports rivalry stuff. That was about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then having moved a lot in my adult years, <laughs> yeah, you've moved yeah. more than anyone I know. I think really, yeah. Well, that's a lot of moves. I'm not yeah. even military, so I spent my entire life in Texas growing up until I left after college and uh, went from Waco to Denver, and then a lot of traveling back to Denver. Now we're headed back to Waco, as people know now. So. Lauren did her travel, all her moves growing up as a kid. And then, um, it's funny cause I, I, it's easier for me to do it now. And I think because she did so much as a kid, it's harder for her to do it as an adult where I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah we're doing it again. It's all, it's no big deal. You know, even though we've been here seven years, yeah, we do this moving thing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, that's a privileged thing to be able to like, we can just get up and move. Right. I mean, right. and it's not, it doesn't affect us really. Well, it affects all of us, but... But not, not in the ways in which we're talking about with immigrants and, you know, yeah. fleeing. I mean, I'm not... That's, we Actually, Laura and I talk often about how it'd be one thing if we actually were miserable here, if we hated it here, if, if it was toxic here. But we love it here. So moving when you love a place is... Uh, yeah. It's a different story. It's different. Yeah. I had no idea you had family roots in Oklahoma. So I am very familiar with that Red River. Um <laughs> I I remember being a kid going back and forth um, across there so many times and getting so excited because the topography really, really changes The there roads if change. You, if you are familiar with that area, it's really cool looking. Um, but by the time I was in fifth grade, I had lived in Montana, Oklahoma, a couple different cities. Texas, couple different cities, and then we kind of landed um, as a family in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and essentially, with some asterisks, which I won't go into, I was raised there and thought I would never, ever leave, but I did. I had to take a job down in South Florida during the recession, and then... I don't know, two and a half years ago or so, I was feeling a little antsy and I decided to move out to Denver. So um, that's my story. And yeah, I think it's really fascinating that we can do this. And I still consider myself an American and I've never considered myself a Montanan or a Virginian or a Texan, despite what my elementary school tried to get me to believe. But, you know, my ancestors came from these really tiny geographic regions, mostly Wales and the UK on my dad's side, and then Scandinavia on my mom's side. And they took these huge risks to come here. And 
I don't know a lot of the story from my mom's side, but I, I know a lot of the story from my dad's side. And in my case, it's a case of privilege. It's a case of people trying to prosper and having money and wanting to make their fortunes in the new world. So I don't know. It's it's interesting for me and especially some of my own personal family history to kind of reconcile, you know, what I know about social justice and some of the inheritance that we have and that sort of thing with yeah. with my values now. Do you like that when you when you move, you are stretched every time, even if it's it's just a hard move. And we've all probably had hard moves, but I think I think we all grow when we when we move for sure. You know, so this question, I think, is different depending on what kind of view you take on it. Um, So we're considering moving right now about half a mile to the east of where we live. And that feels like like traumatic to me. Like, I just don't want to do it. It's too much. It's too much to think about. I don't want to get the moving truck. Twelve, twelve and a half years ago, we moved from North Carolina to here, which was traumatic. It was its own kind of stretch. Um, we came out here, as I said earlier, for school, but um, we moved, you know, with uh, a baby on the way and had a baby here with no friends. We didn't know anybody, and that was really tough, right? So, in some ways, I can, you know, in some very vague way, relate to something like the story in Matthew of having to pick up and move with a with a little one. Uh, in some, as I said, not, not a very strong way, but in some ways I could imagine. And then taking a longer view than that, you know, um, my mother's mother, her people were Finnish. As far as I can tell, most of everyone else was Northern European, although there's some weirdness in, in part of my family where it gets a little murky. But the, you know, if we go back, call it eight or nine generations, uh, parts of my family were here that long ago. But go back past that, and, and we weren't here. We we didn't live here. Um, and we have a lot in common with someone like Abram and Sarah and the story that's told in Genesis. So I, I think all of us, you know, if we take a short view, there's a story. And if we take a middle view, there's a story. And if we take a long view, there's a story. And some of those stories are going to look a lot like these stories in the Bible. And they're going to look a lot like the stories of people, you know, locked up right now in the Aurora Detention Center or locked up in El Paso, or who are waiting it out to, to get a date in an immigration court. So our stories are not so different. The laws that, that we encountered when we moved might be different. But the story of people moving across places is not different. It's common, really, to everyone. Well, if you have a story out there, we'd love to hear it, and you can share it share it with us. You could share it, um, let's see, we have, there's a public group on Facebook. You could share it there, and... Uh, or you know what? Just your own. I think it's fun to like in your own community just to retell your story, yeah. which often we forget about. Like to go, hey, what is, what is your? We, we do that every every week at the table. What's yeah. your religious background? But there's so much more to like. Oh, you know, Ryan grew up Baptist, and Janelle, you know, you grew up Nazarene, and you know, we got we got this Methodist over here in the corner. What does she know about the <laughs> Bible? We joke, right? We joke. <laughs> it, there's so much there in our stories, and so Eric, I appreciate you and and bringing the grand narrative and in your own narrative to our story, to our community here uh, within Brew Theology. And this is a good time. So if you like this, share it. And if you don't like it, well, then curse it. I think we, there are some verses we left out here. Cursed is the man or woman who does not like the Brew Theology podcast. <laughs> it's in the Greek. Yes. It's in the Greek. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, so we, we cheers and uh, yeah, 
we're just thankful for each other and the space that, we, that we've been given on the on the airwaves and the interwebs to do this thing. So yeah. appreciate you guys who are listening, and we will talk to you next time. Cheers.